there is an overriding, overshadowing happiness, fulfillment, contentment that doesn't rely on the acquisition of material stuff or states, conditions, or relationships. To just be who you are. To sit quietly and marvel at the fact that your body breathes itself. To contemplate a sunset, flowers in a meadow. To linger with that appreciation of the newness and the freshness of each moment as it dawns upon you. And it's happiness for no reason. It's joy. And it's right here, right now. And it's always available without condition. Beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of Wisdom of the Soul, brought to you by the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. This is our ongoing free Zoom class, also available on YouTube, and uh, an edited version is podcast as well, wherever you get your podcasts. We're, <laughs> we're really on all podcast players and apps. And just uh, search Google, search your podcast player, search YouTube for Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. It's, uh, it's harder to find, actually, if you search Wisdom of the Soul. So search Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. And if you subscribe, especially a YouTube subscription would help us a lot. We're stretching for 500. We're at about 450. And YouTube will begin to support us push us out, recommend us to others when we get to that 500 mark. So we're almost there. We got uh, 15 new subscribers last month. Today we're going to talk about the unquenchable desire nature. In fact, I had titled the program Unquenchable Desire, and then I decided to call it instead the subtle gnawing of discontent. I guess we're going to talk about happiness, satisfaction, contentment, and why enough is never enough. There are, uh, particularly in Buddhist philosophy, a list of what are often referred to as sufferings. And there's six or seven, depending on how you count them, ways that we suffer. And if suffering is too strong a word, then discontent might be a better way to say it. But there is the uh, the classic sickness, aging, and death. You read this in the story of Siddhartha as a young prince when he finally gets off the <laughs> gets off the reservation 
and goes into town one day, and he encounters sickness, aging, and death, and has never seen such a thing. And this put him on his quest to uh, end suffering. And he figured out pretty quickly that having a lot of money is he was a prince, right? He was going to inherit his whole kingdom. He found out that didn't make him happy, and he left home, left a wife and a child, snuck out. He, he was afraid that if he wanted to say goodbye, that uh, he wouldn't be able to leave. So uh, whatever you think of that, uh, he skipped town, he split didn't even say goodbye, and became a, uh, a pauper and suffered extreme, uh, the extremes of uh, deliberate poverty, uh, eating very little and uh, sleeping on a bed of nails when possible, and standing on one foot for hours in an attempt to, it sounds like he was trying to generate suffering, but the whole idea was if I could move to the opposite of wealth and prosperity and power, maybe I could escape suffering through extreme deprivation. And that didn't work for him. So having a lot of money didn't make him happy, at least not for long, and uh, material stuff and power. And then having nothing, well, that didn't work. And so some point in his early 30s, he sits under this Bodhi tree, and he says, I'm not moving until I figure this out. And he discovers the middle way. So the original story of the sickness, aging, and death comes from that story of Prince Siddhartha. Gautama Siddhartha was his name. There's also injury, so that's four. And um, then there is the suffering or discontent of not getting what you want, the suffering of losing what you have, and then the seventh is, it's six if you add injury and illness together. <laughs> so six or seven. The last one is the suffering of realizing that your desire nature is never satiated, that you're never going to be satisfied. And oddly, most people grow old and die and never have that recognition. It never occurs to them, not once, that I'm on a treadmill, a hamster wheel of looking for happiness, some sort of sustained fulfillment or contentment. And so I acquire this object, I attain this status, this job, this condition or circumstance, this event, this relationship, whatever. And voila, I'm happy for a short period of time. And the reason I call this episode today the subtle gnawing of discontent is that it is really subtle the way desire as soon as you're happy, as soon as you get what you want, this one big thing, whatever it is, doesn't take very long before that desire nature starts looking around for something else. I remember as a kid, I don't think I noticed it, certainly did not understand it the way I do now, but 
all that stuff that I had to have at Christmas, I just would die for. You know, mommy, please, please. I've got to have this or that or whatever. And I got it and I was thrilled and Christmas was magical. And the family was there and everybody was happy and singing songs and a big family dinner. And then there's a crash. There's this letdown. It may be an easy, gradual letdown. Maybe it's just all the sugar. I don't, I don't know. But you crash and suddenly all those things that you piled up having opened them on Christmas morning, just they, they didn't have the attraction that they seem to have. And that could be, you know, a car or a house or a job or a relationship. You know, that relationship, that, that partner that you've just, you just have to have this relationship, right? And for 30 days, 60 days, maybe even 90 days, things are smooth as silk. You're on cloud nine. Couldn't be happier. And then something happens. What is that? What is that discontent? What is that wandering around? What are we looking for? And do we even know what we want? I mean, what we really want. I understand that each of us thinks we know, on certain occasions, what we want. But if you consider the story, for example, of the genie in the bottle, and you rub the, the lamp and the genie comes out and grants you three wishes, you're still stuck. Because you have to know what you want. I've yet to read a story where the first wish is, tell me what I want. Because <laughs> I don't know. Has it occurred to us from time to time that the reason we don't have what we want is because we don't know what we want? Not really. Not specifically. Not in any detail. And all the times that we're spoiled by getting what we thought we wanted and then finding out it ain't all that. Well, this is a trap. And we can avoid this suffering by developing contentment exactly as you are. In Eastern philosophy, this principle is generally called acceptance, but it's misunderstood in the West. Acceptance is not the end of things, like, oh, you just got to accept it. Never going to happen. It's not going to make you happy. Um, it's pie in the sky. Nice dream. You're fooling yourself, you know. No, I don't mean that kind of acceptance. Acceptance is not the end of things. Acceptance is the beginning of things. I would suggest to you today that acceptance means to acknowledge reality in the current moment. And that's where you begin. If you want to modify or improve or change, you still have to first accept it and then change. But can we do that? Can we improve our lives? Is all desire bad? Or is it just a matter of getting hip to the fact that it's not going to be ultimately fulfilling. Some of what I want to talk about today. Hope you're on board with this. I think this is fascinating. Because I have desires. I have lots of desires. 
but I approached them differently than <laughs> than I did as a young man. So I'd love to discuss some of that with you later. Let's do our opening meditation if you get comfortable in your chairs or your pillow. Eyes open, wide awake, do that now. Open your eyes. Alert, rested, refreshed, feeling better and better and better. Feeling better than before. Eyes open, wide awake, back in the room. And maybe a nice deep breath and a little stretch. And thank you for that. So discontent can really be a good thing. This subtle gnawing. And sometimes not so subtle. Sometimes it can be really urgent. But it's so confusing. It's like, well, again, what do I want? What would make me happy? I don't know. A lot of us spend too much time looking at others and what appears to make them happy. But all you see is the surface. So you may see the happiness of success in another person's life, but you don't see the way that deteriorates until it happens to you. And you get a, well, something new, a new car. And you promise yourself you're going to wash it every Saturday and wax it once a month and never let anybody smoke in your car. I was going to say something about ashtrays, but cars don't, <laughs> cars don't have ashtrays anymore. You know, and hardly a month goes by before some moron pushes a shopping cart into the side of your car. You paid thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 for it. Now it's not perfect anymore, and you're crushed. <laughs> What's that line? We've all heard our mothers at one point say, and that's why we can't have nice things. <laughs> you rotten kids. No respect. You can't have nice things because we live in a world where all things are impermanent. All material things are rotting before your very eyes. They're all in decay. Nothing lasts. It's an illusion created by advertisers and manufacturers and big multinational corporations that you can own something. Even a home that, that you're told you own your home. Yeah, miss three payments and see what happens. See who owns your home. Even if you 90% of the way toward paying it off, you don't own squat. And the car, or anything else that we think we own. Musical instruments, which I love dearly, my guitars. They're all in decay. They're all rotting. You can't really possess something. It's an illusion. It's only for a short period of time. So doesn't it make sense if the object you desire, or the circumstance or condition, is not static, but in perpetual decay. That the satisfaction that you get from possessing it would also be in perpetual decay. 
that the feeling that comes from, oh boy, far out, is going to fade? And every thought you've ever had faded. I was talking to Doreen this morning. We're both writing books about motivation. Writer's block. It's got lots of names. And I was sharing with her my own sense of the ebb and flow of being motivated to write. And sometimes I just burn to do it. And I just jump into it and, you know, it consumes me. And I just write and write and research. And I've got three documents open, you know, my scratch pad. And then I have a, a grammar program that I put it in and check grammar and, and um, you know, punctuation and that kind of thing. And then uh, finally a Word document, I'm balancing all of this. and got Google open on the side and doing research. And then other times, voice in my head says, you should write today. You've got a couple hours here. And I have to admit, I just I don't feel like it. I'm just not motivated. And then the mind rushes in with a bunch of reasons, but the reasons aren't real. They're just trying to fill in the blank. The point is, you're not motivated emotionally. That's what matters, not the mental justification or explanation. That's silly. That doesn't matter. The point is, you, you've lost the passion. You've lost the fire. Well, of course, everything is impermanent. Everything fades. But here's the thing. It comes back around again, doesn't it? We've talked in the last few weeks about the ebb and flow of all things, the yin and the yang, the the crest and the trough of the wave. Everything is energy. Everything vibrates. Everything has its coming and going. So why struggle? Just wait for it to come around again. I don't feel like writing. Fine. So I'll go do something else. Sure got a lot to do. Or maybe I remind myself that I need to spend more time meditating or contemplating or just sitting outdoors in the evening watching the sun go down, allowing Venus <laughs> to entertain me for an hour or two as she gets brighter and brighter and lower and lower in the evening sky. I consider that productive. <laughs> And then the fires will come back and I'll wake up one day and go, damn, what a great idea. I got to put that in the book. And all of a sudden, I mean, wait for it. Don't push the river. Don't force yourself. I think we can avoid a lot of discontent when we put ourselves in tune with the rhythms of our lives, the rhythms of things, and know that whatever situation you're in, highly motivated or completely unmotivated, it'll change. <laughs> it'll, it'll cycle around. Just wait for it. Like the surfer. Maybe the ocean's flat, but you paddle out anyway. And you just hang out on the board, and suddenly a few waves start to rise up all by themselves. Here they come. Then there's the story of the seventh wave, so you count. And sure enough, the seventh wave is the big one. 
and you catch it and ride. Then you paddle out, and then you wait. The patience is the hard part, I guess. Now, here's another point when we talk about the subtle gnawing of discontent and how we set ourselves up for discontent, why we don't recognize this hamster wheel or this this treadmill of, uh, I want it, I really want it, I've got to have it, I'll die if I don't get it, and then, voila, success, victory, accomplishment, and I'm happy as a lark for an hour, a day, a month, a year, but it doesn't last, and is quickly replaced by another desire. Let's get hip to that trick. Let's, let's, let's get smart about it. Okay. Doesn't mean you can't allow yourself to have desire. I mean, <laughs> if you desired to have no desire, would that not be a desire? So that's a little conundrum. Desire in and of itself is not a problem. If you're new to Buddhist philosophy, you might look at the second noble truth and say, well, desire is the problem. I suffer because I want things to be other than they are. It's pretty straightforward, these four noble truths. Number one, life is suffering. You will know suffering. Number two, it's the result of your desire nature. You set yourself up for it. If you were content, with what you have and admit that that's quite good enough, you wouldn't have the desire and you wouldn't be disappointed and you wouldn't suffer. Noble truth number three, there's a way out. You can stop doing this. And number four is how. The Noble Eightfold Path, which we discussed in these classes a few months ago. Check that out if you missed it. The Noble Eightfold Path. It's adjacent to a class we did on the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Also eight in number. Eight Beatitudes, eight steps on the noble path. The fourth truth is the Eightfold Path. How to get out of it. But this desire nature is a trap. And I think it's compounded by a misunderstanding of any kind of success as a destination, particularly love and happiness, since that's ultimately what everybody wants. So one thing everybody could agree on, well, I just, yeah, I want this and this and this. I want this material thing, and, and I want this quality of relationships in my life, and I want these conditions and circumstances and this event and that event, whatever. So that we can be happy. I mean, that's bottom line. What you want is to be happy or content or satisfied or satiated or fulfilled or joyous. Happy for no reason. But here's the deal. We think of happiness like success as a destination. And so we behave in ways that we believe will take us to happiness. 
that we have to create happiness. You know, like school or work. You have to, school, you have to study, you get a good grade, everybody's happy. The teacher's happy, your parents are happy, and that makes you happy. Or at work. Or in your familial relationships. Making other people happy, we see as a way of us being happy. And it works. I'm not denying it. I try real hard in my life to make other people happy, and I enjoy happiness as a consequence. But that's not, that's not the whole story. What about being happy as a way of creating success instead of thinking only of success as making you happy? There was a newspaper man in the 1960s Trying to remember his name. Musty, I think. He had initials. It was like A.J. Musty or something like that. But what I do remember is the quotable quote that he wrote. This was in the Vietnam War era. And he said, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. And I was in college when we heard that. And it just blew my lid. Holy cow. Major reframe. <laughs> war doesn't make peace. You don't get to peace through war, or what did Nixon call it? Peace through strength. Boy, there's an evil euphemism for you. You have to get through peace by killing people and blowing stuff up. That's the way you get to peace. It's insane on the surface of it. But that's what we do with a military budget that we dare to call a defense budget. By the way, nobody's probably ever told you this, but less than 15% of so-called defense spending goes to defend the country. 85% and more goes to project your power and influence in foreign places. America has combat troops, armed combat troops, in 150 nations. There's only 195 nations in the world. Not nearly that many in the UN, but 195 nations in the world. You're paying to have armed military American troops in 150 of them, and we call it defense. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. This is true also for love. There is no way to love. There is no way to happiness. Love and happiness is the way. Well, I think that merits being written down if you got a pencil or a pen. That is such a wonderful way to reorient yourself on a daily basis. Your personal peace and love and happiness is not a destination. And how much of what we do is an attempt 
the problems we solve, the heartache we deal with, the relationships we cultivate and grieve when they're lost, is to try to create happiness. You don't have to create happiness. Happiness is a choice. You choose now to be happy, content, fulfilled for no reason, and recognize desire as a liar. Desire is saying you're not happy. What is the essence of advertising? <laughs> and marketing, but to convince you that you're not happy. Oh, you may think you're happy, but you're not, because you don't have the new and improved, the better feature-rich version of. <laughs> I remember seeing a Saturday Night Live skit years and years ago, back in the early days, like probably the late 70s, early 80s. I think it was Dan Aykroyd, actually, came out as a, uh, you know, a TV huckster. And uh, he was going to sell the latest and the greatest model uh, a device for cleaning your home. And it used no power and never broke down and uh, was more efficient than any other device. And he breaks it out, and it's a broom. <laughs> and he goes about this three- or four-minute routine that was just brilliant of demonstrating this wonderful new invention, simple, elegant, energy-efficient, never breaks down, the broom. They must have fallen off their chairs at Dyson in Hoover and Bissell when they saw that. Look, I like new stuff as much as anybody. I love gadgets. I mentioned the musical instruments, which to me are almost like living things. I like computers. I like that we can do these Zoom classes and uh, cool technology. I even like AI, although it scares me, and it should, because even the guys that own the corporations, the AI, like OpenAI and Google and, and, and Apple and Microsoft, they're scared to death. They were in front of Congress last week begging for regulation, and they said it's, it's an existential threat. AI is an existential threat. These are the people that own the AI corporations saying, these robots could cause the extinction of humanity on the level of global warming or nuclear war. And yet we can't put it down because it also holds such extraordinary promise. You can't just, what's the story? You can't get rid of all the spinning wheels in the kingdom to make sure the princess doesn't prick her finger on the, on the needle. Somebody's going to have a spinning wheel hidden away someplace. Or the, the, the Jurassic Park thing, you know, of, uh, oh, we have only, uh, what was it, only, only male dinosaurs or only female dinosaurs, so they'll never breed. 
No, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Nature finds a way. So, I love all this stuff. I think the secret is to be hip to the trick. If you're going to desire something, even just let's keep it simple, just an object, an item. Gosh, I would really like to have this cool thing. Maybe something new that I've never had. Maybe something to replace a device that I have that needs replacing, or I really like all the new cool features. I don't think there's anything wrong with desire in and of itself, as long as you know that the satisfaction that you get from obtaining it or possessing it will decay. And the subtle gnawing of discontent is going to rise up on its own and lead you in another direction that is unending, as long as you're hip to the trick. When you desire something and really, really want it, hold it gently in the palm of your hand as if it's fragile. Because you may not get it, or if and when you do, you may have to settle, or you may get everything you wanted and find out it ain't all that. You were duped. You only thought it would make you happy, and it didn't. And however happy it does make you, that fades. I'm just arguing that there is an overriding, overshadowing happiness, fulfillment, contentment that doesn't rely on the acquisition of material stuff or states, conditions, or relationships. To just be who you are. To sit quietly and marvel at the fact that your body breathes itself. To contemplate a sunset, flowers in a meadow, a single flower. To look at the beauty that surrounds you, and so often we ignore because we're too busy. To linger with that appreciation of the newness and the freshness of each moment as it dawns upon you, the eternal now, now, and the rhythm. I mean, time may be an illusion, but rhythm is real. There is, there is an in-breath and an out-breath, a yin and a yang, a coming and going in the now, a waxing and a waning right now. Don't be confused. Now is not a static thing by any means. It's full and it's rich and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's happiness for no reason. It's joy. And it's right here, right now. And it's always available without condition. It's not a destination we're being lied to by advertisers politicians, movers, shakers, opinion makers, and, <laughs> and by our own desire nature, this is no cowboy. You only think you're happy. The fulfillment we're looking for is an understanding of self and your relationship to all that is. That happiness, that joy is infinite and eternal, and it's the only thing that 
will not fade or suffer impermanence, will not decay. <laughs>